Good afternoon. Welcome back. Hope lunch was good and you had a good chat over lunch. Um, given the very stimulating two sessions, three sessions we had in the morning. Um, we now shift focus uh, to a certain extent and really think about what it means to learn from others. Both of these, the rest of the remaining sessions, are really uh, geared around and contoured around how do we ensure learning takes place um, in this community around this subject matter. Um, and so the first session we've got projects from across Europe who've all uh, attempted to and successfully worked through how to integrate um, SSH research into energy policy making or policy thinking, or how to do it. Um, and then we've got a series of approaches in the second session where you actually get to listen to individuals who've kind of uh, done the thing, but again, being able to learn directly from what it is was that actually that made the thing happen, i.e. how do you learn from not only the tricks of the trade, but actually what went wrong, what went right, and how can we think about shaping that better as a result of that almost cross-fertilisation, cross cross-pollination of work, thinking, practice, and what success looked like or what failure looked like, because actually there's some huge learning to be achieved through actually what didn't work, and did our, did our hypothesis work or not, for example. But... The main, I think, the, the underpinning issue here is about collaboration. I mean, we've heard a lot about what the issues are around incorporating SSH uh, research activities into energy policy making. But part of that requires a, a, a view, I think, an understanding amongst the community that's funded or, or involved academically or through public sector, is that how do you underpin what we do in learning to be focused on collaboration and collaborative practice rather than competitive practice, which is about eyeing the pot of money and thinking, how can I get a bit of that money? And there's a necessity of that to a certain extent, but actually, as we think about the future and think about the urgency that we require and the pace that we require, one of the driving forces surely has to be how do we actually create something more sustainable which is based on a collaborative model of learning uh, where we each share the piece of the pie for a common good. So on that note, I'm going to invite Xavier Troussard first to speak to us and introduce this particular session. Xavier is European Commission Director of Competencies in the Joint Research Centre. Xavier, over to you first. There's a mic. Okay. Um, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Xavier Troussard. I come from the Joint Research Center. I don't know whether you know the Joint Research Center. This is the uh, scientific uh, knowledge manager, uh, scientific service and, and knowledge manager of the European Commission. So our, our, our work is to try to produce evidences or collect uh, evidences to support policymaking uh, um, uh, in the Commission. Um, I think the... Um, you, you all know perfectly this list of uh, challenges that are the challenges that any policymaker is facing now, because probably in the energy sector you've been facing those uh, challenges for longer than any other sector. You've been talking about transition, so we would expect that you're best than other fields at managing transitions and uh, putting together all it needs to uh, face those challenges. But hiccups here and there show that we are not uh, yet um, up to speed. Uh, we 
see people that have problems with the speed and the depth of the transition, some people that bring issues of fairness of the transition. I could prolong the list with this little or big failures on smart meters or so either, where ethical issues are raised. So it seems there's something which actually doesn't work. Is it a question of insights that are not uh, generated, that are not communicated, that are not taken up? Uh, it seems anyway there's something uh, missing. And it might well be also that in general in policymaking we have a difficulty to understand that transition is fundamentally a social construct. This is not a matter of technology and market. This is a social construct. And we need to engage with that. So our experience in the GSC uh, can lead to some reflections about where the effort can be productive. Uh, first uh, area where effort can be productive is to develop an anticipatory culture. It's not about having a crystal ball or, or a new model. It's to transform this uh, future into preparedness, openness to change. And it's a cultural challenge. This is not a technical challenge. So we can try to push it in our own organizations that so we do our part in the commission in trying to uh, uh, trigger horizon scanning. We have a, a Megatrans hub repository. But I think this is a challenge that uh, you can bring in other parts of society, ideally from school up to uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the end of your life, you should have another look at what is emerging and what is shaping our future, and that would significantly change the way we discuss about transitions in the society. One particular method, of course, we can think of that can be very useful for policymakers in this respect is foresight. So, Foresight is at times easy to dismiss because it's not representative. You do not end up with the nice figure like with the model. But it has some strengths that policymakers more and more recognize. And one, one of the very important strengths that we see in the Commission in the uptake of foresight projects and foresight studies is the participatory nature. The future is a safer place to engage with your stakeholders. And so foresight projects... Uh, are a new way to engage with your stakeholders and co-shape visions for, 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 the, for the futures. Of course, you, you need to bring some innovation also in your foresight practice. And we, the, the image you see come from a, a foresight project we've done um, on blockchain uh, where we used uh, design, uh, what we call speculative design, to provoke thoughts and to open discussions on technology with people that are not um, uh, specialists of, of, of technology. And it has had impact up to the top of the organization. So it triggered interesting discussions on what are the implications. You also need to bring innovations in cooperation because we need to bring together the quantitative and the qualitative work on future together. Second area of uh, uptake um, uh, in, in policymaking is uh, the, the, the uptake of uh, the body of behavioral research. Uh, there's a growing recognition that the, the myth of the rational subject that makes rational decision uh, is, 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 is the, the one we should build on. Uh, but still, there's a difficulty for policymakers to get interested in, in this nebulous word of uh, values, uh, how trust is... is uh, is built and, and transformed, what are the perceptions, the, the, the emotions. Uh, there's a body of research on behavioral science over the last decades that have um, 
teach us how we constantly uh, are subject to biases. Uh, we use heuristics in making uh, decisions, and this can inform new tools for policymaking. We use it uh, in reforming our modeling support. So the modeling support for the energy policy on EU now builds on agent-based modeling. But uh, interestingly, across Europe and across the world, uh, we see also that the, the knowledge about behaviors is impacting the design of policy solutions. So you uh, see policymakers exploiting the power of default. Uh, so if you choose the right default, you, you have much more impact. Uh, you, you, you want also to look at making easy for people to make the choice you believe is in their self-interest. So if you want them to insulate the attic, you may provide them with services to clean the attic first, and you'll see that it is much more effective. You want to make it simple for them to navigate the information, and this has informed uh, actually EU policies. Uh, you want also to use the social norm and, and to recognize that people are also prone to follow what, what uh, is going on around of them. Uh, so I think this is a field where there's a growing interest uh, and open doors, I would say, from policymakers. It's partly due to the method which, uh, with randomized controlled trials, uh, builds on psychology has a basis, but then in the end is very experimental and tested. And so I think this brings also this experimental dimension into policymaking. Um, the, the, the third area I wanted to quickly touch on is uh, this move from relying on information up to going to the steps that lead to empowerment of people. So we've a lot relied in our policies in general on informing people, claiming that if they're informed, they will do the, the right choices. We see now that we are struggling with uh, not only the uh, information uh, overload, but we are struggling with actually the meaning of information, the uh, value of information. We see uh, that they, this is very difficult to communicate. Evidences, facts are disputed, and, and people are entrenched in beliefs that are uh, um, um, communicated on social media uh, into uh, bubbles that are very difficult to penetrate. So we have new challenges in terms of channeling information, channeling evidences, and getting this common base that should be the basis for, for an informed discussion. Uh, so it's more, and more than ever important that social sciences uh, are able to bring an understanding of the context. So people are engaging. We, we, we all speak about engagement, and in, in, in an institution like the Commission, it translates into let's make a new consultation. But before, before getting to the new consultation, you should recognize that people engage everywhere. They engage in social media, they engage uh, at local level, they engage in their community, in organizations. Let's first sense and make sense of this engagement of people before we ask them new questions, new positions. So that's a fundamental. So we, we, we're talking about narrative analysis, network analysis, um, uh, uh, behavioral analysis and other kind of analysis that allow to sense the context before we move. Of course, we then have to go beyond the EU survey uh, and uh, a questionnaire. Um, uh, we, we need to have uh, ways, spaces and tools that allow to, to engage. So our experience with the EU Policy Lab or our experience with the Makerspace uh, 
uh, our experience with developing games to empower people to engage in debates is, is quite positive. And we see more and more policymakers that recognize that they learn from those engagements things that they don't learn in the reports that they commission. So this is certainly an area where uh, science and technology studies and, uh, and other methods can bring a lot, including design. Uh, and all of this uh, because, in the end, a successful transition is a transition which is co-designed, which is co-owned. And I think what we see now more and more is that transition and change does not happen through individual change, but more and more communities. And so I think that's the next step. We organized last year a, a, um, a workshop in ISPRA on um, uh, energy communities and, and uh, social innovation. And there's something here uh, which still has to be further digged into and, and better explained. But it's not a matter of just changing one's uh, behavior. It's a matter of building together a transition as a community. All this has, obviously, implications and responsibilities for everybody. Policymakers should certainly be more open to a variety of um, uh, insights. They should not just look for the figure coming out of the model um, uh, or, or for the new prediction about the speed of deployment of a particular technology. They should look at um, uh, energy poverty. They should look at uh, what we know from, from the social um, uh, understanding of those issues. They should care for values and they should co-create the agendas with, with uh, um, stakeholders, including citizens. But there are also responsibilities on the scientific side. Uh, it's at times too easy for scientists to stay in their splendid isolation, uh, cultivating their very small uh, piece of um, uh, research and having uh, their success measured with peer journal publications. Uh, so it's a challenge to engage with policymakers because you have to co-create the research agenda so it is uh, meaningful, uh, but it's also a challenge to engage with society. And I think this is also a responsibility. And I think the, the, the last call is transdisciplinarity. When I joined the uh, Joint Research Center uh, four years ago, the challenge was to create a policy innovation lab. And uh, I thought it would be difficult because of the difficulty to get the interest of policymakers in the rest of the commission. Uh, but the most important difficulty was to work with a transdisciplinary team and to make it work together so that we can reframe the questions from policymakers and develop original research agendas that build on the strengths of different disciplines. That was the toughest uh, job. So last uh, call is for, for transdisciplinarity engagement of, of scientists. But I'm sure these are topics we'll discuss all the afternoon. Thank you. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that was extremely powerful, very effective, um, uh, laying out some of the key issues uh, on this particular agenda. And I think it's interesting you ended on that point about transdisciplinarity teams were the ones that you found most difficult, which goes to the heart of this debate also, is that how do you move, move more collaboratively but actually think differently uh, and horizontally around some of your agenda, and that can be sometimes very, very difficult. I'm now going to invite uh, each of the presentees to come to the, to the, to the stage. So first, I'm going to start with Georgia from PROSU. I'm not going to say much about it, because I'm going to let you two introduce it and tell us a little bit about the project that you've been involved in. Uh, 
Thank you very much for the introduction and thank you very much to organize and also for having me here today. And good afternoon, everyone, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you today to talk a little bit in only five minutes and I'll try to stick to the time allocated. Um, what the project Prozio is actually dealing with right now and what we are doing and how what is our contribution, let's say, to the implementation, the acceleration of the energy transition? So our project um, has two primary goals. The first one is to mainstream the prosumer phenomenon uh, into the energy union. And the second one is also to really support uh, the, the wishes of, of the uh, European Union to actually put the citizens at the core of this energy union that is being developed. So we start from the assumption that increasingly the phenomenon of prosumerism is speeding up across Europe. We have many communities that are actually starting their own community-led project. And this is, of course, from one side a challenge, because of, for, of course it asks for new models, for different market regulations, for different integration in terms of policies, but also the infrastructure. And on the other side, it's a great potential to really bring down uh, the collaboration and the potential that we have from our citizens into supporting us in decarbonizing our energy supply it also in dealing with what is very important is the redistribution of both the costs and the benefits of the energy transition. So what are we doing? We have two main research questions uh, that we are bringing forward. And in particular, we want to really uh, try to analyze what are the incentives and the disincentive structures that are enabling or not the mainstreaming of presumerism. So we will, first of all, try to understand how these different incentives and this model can successfully enhance inclusiveness and transparency across Europe in the energy transition. But also we want to check from the other side how really can prosumers contribute to the to the energy transition de facto. So we will look into that and specifically we will look into energy users that are both co of course consumers and producers and in particular into collective initiatives. So the main target groups uh, that we will be uh, engaging are first of all as I was mentioning our uh, prosumers uh, of renewable energy. We will also engage very much with different kinds of policymakers at all different levels both at European, national and also local, uh, local level, but we also aim to engage into a wider community of interest, uh, different uh, sectors such as, for example, the alternative financial sector, SMEs, different startups, different um, utilities companies, system operators, and the large also, of course, NGOs, the media, and the entire academic community. So what we will do now, it, uh, it's basically, we will start from an assessment uh, of what has been happening in the past years across Europe when it comes to prosumer, a sort of an analysis of our baseline, seeing what's going on and what is happening around, trying to understand what kind of uh, communities are there, what kind of structures do they have, what kind of financial models do they follow, and we will have a three main streams uh, of, of analysis in our research, looking into different kinds of policy and regulations that have been implemented and assessing which have been beneficial, which have been uh, actually counteracting a little bit the effort of these communities of setup. We are going to do the same in terms of financing and business models, trying to investigate what are the different uh, steps that have been taken and what is possible, what are the gaps still available. And then finally also investigating a little bit 
the technological aspect, looking into what is the real potential out there, also from a technological point of view. So all of this will be done uh, across our entire project with the aim to develop, from a technological point of view, a series of scenarios that will lead both uh, at, uh, at the streamlining and the mainstreaming of the prosumers initiatives at the national level and the European level towards 2030 and 2050, but also to look into what kind of innovative uh, solutions have to be implemented, including, for example, in terms of policy regulation, how changes in these fields at the national level can really impact on the presumers initiative. All of this will be analyzed also from a socioeconomic point of view, where we will try to understand, as I mentioned before, the different incentive structures and what is actually encouraging and discouraging uh, the energy responsible behavior that we, we, we aim to see within our, our, uh, our communities. And in that, we will analyze, of course, the question of inclusiveness, of gender, of democracy, and seeing what kind of organizational format have been acquired and implemented across Europe in our different communities. So all of that will be analyzed into uh, um, a specific format. We will implement at least 15 living labs across Europe in different countries uh, with the idea of having a semi-experimentation ex semi and a co-learning process where we will have direct intervention with stakeholders on the ground, so looking into collecting together uh, the different communities, but also other actors that are there, including, for example, the public sector, the private sector, different NGOs, transition movements that are on the ground, bringing them together and with them co-designing four different interventions that we will carry out from one side to assess what their needs are, what their vision is, what is their narrative. We were talking about narrative before. Why are they engaging? What do they see themselves in 10, 15 years? And how does that match what we are thinking about our energy transition for the future. And ultimately, with the goal somehow to bring down this energy union directly into the ground with, our, with the people that are implementing these activities directly there. So our expected impact, let's say, what we really want to, uh, to see being, being implemented in the future, uh, it, it's somehow a contribution to a more sustainable, secure and prosperous Europe that comes through the engagement of the communities and of the citizens. And with that, we want to, of course, investigate what is the concrete potential that these communities can bring into, into shifting from fossil fuel to renewable energy, but also into assessing prosumerism as a system, cha a system change, a systematic transition that can happen, and what kind of institutional changes are needed. Obviously, this will come with fostering different kinds of innovation, and also into trying to identify what are the cross-cutting and different uh, socioeconomic, so social, but also, for example, uh, technological incentive structure, regulatory structure that can engage and encourage this, this such a, a responsible behavior across the citizens that are participating. So ultimately, uh, we, we believe that this is, uh, of course, also a great opportunity to somehow bring a little bit back what is a very high-level European agenda that is, of course, then received into the national and into the local level very often, but it somehow feels very distant to the communities that we are engaging at the moment. And we hope that this will be a great response, not only to the advancement of the European agenda, but most of all also to this idea of energy democracy and engagement of the society. Thank you very much indeed. And um, a very interesting example of how you might 
bridge the democratic deficit on the energy union, actually, and bring it really down uh, to the ground. And, you know, go building on the points from um, uh, Xavier, you've got the interdis interdisciplinary approach. But actually, what's fundamentally interesting about it is that you're taking a holistic a holistic critical inquiry approach that puts people at the heart of it, which is, which is really interesting. But there's a nice segue into the next presentation. So we have an hour look at understanding fuel po energy poverty, understanding energy poverty in Europe from Stefan Bazarowski from the University of Manchester. Stefan, up to you. Thanks. Thank you. So is it just this to change the slides then? If, uh, okay. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, uh, for being here today uh, through the afternoon. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I will speak about the fight against energy poverty in Europe through a number of uh, projects, including the EU Energy Poverty Observatory. Uh, the observatory itself is not a Horizon project. It's actually a contract with the European uh, Commission. But there's also another project that I will talk about, Engager, which is a cost project. So altogether, I should say, I guess one of the things that comes that is important here is that these are uh, initiatives that are SSH-led and SSH-centered. So uh, very much um, the human dimension is very much part of them. And another thing I should say about energy poverty that came up uh, uh, this morning, uh, energy poverty um, is not just a social issue. So people think of it as a sort of social policy issue. Um, it is very much around energy efficiency, the quality of housing. So we tend to think of it almost as a material deprivation issue as opposed to a poverty issue. So indeed, uh, to deliver a low-carbon future, to deliver a sustainable energy future in Europe, you cannot consider the social, you cannot go further without considering uh, the social dimension. So um, indeed, what these initiatives are doing is looking at questions around social inequality and um, poverty, and particularly improvements in housing and energy efficiency. Did this move? Yes, wonderful. So um, I would say these two things that I'm going to talk about, the observatory and Engager, do different things, and that's how I've divided this presentation. The observatory is very much around monitoring, reporting, and decision support. I've listed the portal of the observatory there. You can go and see it for yourself, www.energypoverty.eu. Uh, it's an open access resource, very user-friendly, and it basically improves transparency. It's there to provide lots of data around energy poverty. Much of this data is original and new, hasn't been published elsewhere, and indeed we didn't have that kind of information before, so we've now brought it together in one place, and you can really see trends, patterns across a variety of sectors. The other thing that the observatory does, it enables knowledge sharing, so there's a huge repository of initiatives around energy poverty. Again, just to give you a sense of local, regional, uh, citizen-led actions to fight it, uh, before the observatory, these were invisible. You just didn't know about them, and now we have one place where you can find out about them. And also, the observatory disseminates information. There's lots of reports, some of them coming up, conferences and, su and such, again, aimed at providing knowledge exchange and primarily decision support, not just for the European Commission, as we move now uh, with the implementation of the Clean Energy Package, but also the level of regions, nations, uh, local authorities, as well as non-governmental organizations. When I say non-governmental, I don't just mean civic society organizations. It can also be companies, all, all kinds of other um, third-party actors. And the uh, observatory is very large. There are 13 organizations involved and more than 100 experts. So I, I, I would suppose it's kind of an initiative that very much puts center stage what, um, what is a social dimension of the energy transition. 
The initiative I wanted to talk about is Engager, and indeed, if, um, if I weren't here today, I would have been in Bucharest, where a second Engager conference is taking place right now. Engager is much more um, an, an initiative focused on networking and innovation, uh, indeed funded by a Corporation in Science and Technology. Uh, essentially what it does, it brings together scientists, but also practitioners, researchers, um, decision makers and so on, focused on combating the issue. And the idea very much here is through networking to generate an innovation. Partly because this question of energy poverty is not just about energy, or not, it's not even just about poverty. It is something that permeates how we regulate the whole of in, in the infrastructural energy sector. It regulates it's about how we organize housing, cities. It has many implications for health and indeed for local and regional and various other sustainability transitions. So very, we're essentially through the window of energy, we're looking at a wider set of issues. I was asked to comment slightly on the, what the benefits are in terms of the very the key, I would say, uh, leadership that the European Union, the Commission have provided in terms of combating energy poverty. And I would say there are five things here. So first of all, data transparency, because for the first time, and after many, many years, I've been in this area for almost 20 years now, we have actually comprehensive, detailed, and disaggregated information available to all. Integration and the clean energy package, of which the observatory is also a part, for one, starts to bring together different kinds of institutions, uh, from the European Union down to national scales and so on. Um, it provides also a basis for common action, because now we're able to share connections, resources, and so on. Allows for knowledge exchange, co-production, because it's not just about scientists or experts or policymakers or company people talking at somebody else. It's about creating co common forums, just as was mentioned before through the work of the JRC. And indeed, it's about novelty and innovation. The point is, through these interactions, through these discussions, we can generate new insights. And that's very much the crux of what we're trying to do, not just talk about I don't know, percentage of income spent on energy and keep it there, there, but actually finding new ways of understanding how we measure questions around inequality, energy, society, societal change. Right, I hope I stayed to time. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you very much. Again, very, very helpful, a very different approach to uh, gaining policy insight, but an approach which is, again, fairly, fairly interactive, but actually looking at the whole system rather than simply uh, one facet of it. We now move on, uh, move on to Energize, and uh, we have uh, Francis Fay, who will tell us a little bit about what we mean by using the network for sustainable energy. Over to you. Thank you very much and good afternoon, everybody. I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to be here on behalf of my team, an excellent team of social, well, SSH researchers uh, who are exploring what we believe is obviously uh, an incredibly um, interesting topical and, and urgent uh, uh, issue. The goal of our Energize project really, well, it's a, it's a three-year pan-European research initiative, and we're trying to achieve a greater scientific understanding of the social and cultural influences on energy consumption. So what we're doing, working with householders, uh, working with implementing partners like local energy agencies, we're developing, we're testing and assessing different options for bottom-up transformation of energy use in both households and communities across Europe. So some of those terms, obviously, we've heard a lot about this morning. 
What we're really trying to do is work to address a central question in the social sciences or in social sciences approaches to, shall we say, household energy studies. And that question is, how do conventions around energy um, services evolve? How do they alter over time and how can they be changed once they are cemented? So what we've done is we've taken a, quite an experimental approach and we've developed living labs to directly observe existing practice cultures related to energy consumption. So in real-world settings, in people's households, in people's kitchens, in their living rooms, we're testing a different range of household and community-level uh, initiatives, again, looking at reducing energy consumption. So what we're doing, obviously, data collection before, during, and we've just finished this really exciting period of fieldwork, uh, but we've been implementing 16 living labs across eight partner countries, and uh, that really will be instrumental, we believe, in contributing to the design and assessment of future energy consumption initiatives across Europe. So some of our key findings to date, and again, just like to, to draw your attention perhaps to our website, um, energizeproject.e, uh, well I have the, the full address up in a second, but we have multiple outputs and these are just some of our, if you like, key results to date. We've developed a conceptual framework which really draws on practice theory and perspectives on energy use. The framework then informed a systematic shall we say, uh, criteria-guided review and classification of over 1,000, so 1,067 to be exact, sustainable energy initiatives across 30 European countries. And that really provided us with this comprehensive online database of what's going on around Europe with regard to energy initiatives uh, involving households. We subsequently... Um, and developed innovative typologies to try and classify some of these activities to really get an idea of what's going on across Europe, drawing on perhaps uh, Dirk's comments from the previous panel of actually looking at where are the successes, what's made them successful, you know, how can other groups learn from uh, similar, uh, similar groups across Europe. Uh, we've produced a number of different deliverables, uh, national reports reviewing obviously state-of-the-art and different trends when it comes to uh, national uh, energy policies. So, as I was asked in this presentation to focus on what does any of this mean uh, to, the, uh, to the EU, and again, you know, the database, obviously, very useful resources, but what, what, what it points to, apart from being a resource for other, shall we say, community and uh, different initiatives to, to learn from each other, but it points to a need for a new or a sufficiency approach, because... When you analyse all of the household uh, initiatives that we obviously incorporated, less than 10% actually focused in on consuming less energy. And that to us was really striking. And from our review of the database as well, you know, we, we looked at uh, five categories in particular of initiatives kind of jumped out and they were identified as likely to work across Europe. And they were needs-based tailored approaches and support this idea of pioneers or champions, perhaps some uh, literature refers to them as. The idea of challenges, games and competition. The idea of, of obviously, peer-to-peer -peer initiatives. And finally, then, the idea of learning by doing. So what we did was we took... We developed a living lab approach which drew on these five different initiatives. And we've been involved, as I said, in rolling them out uh, across Europe. Um, our research highlights, and again, uh, Professor Abram this morning opened with this, the idea that we need to work with people's practices. And we need, you know, we, we, what we're doing in the project is focusing in on energy as things like heating, laundry. We talk about energy as it's used in people's everyday worlds, dropping children to school. They're the conversations we have. We talk about comfort, we talk about cleanliness, convenience, a whole range of different tangible to householder uh, concepts. 
Um, we're obviously looking to provide recommendations for achieving, if you like, this idea of normalization of sustainable well-being. And uh, the, we would argue that that's uh, fundamental when we talk about uh, setting future agendas. So furthermore, some of our impacts... Um, Really what this, the project is striving to do, and it's just in its final year now of a three-year project, uh, what we're doing is identifying and demonstrating individual and collective practices and approaches that can reduce dependency on imported energy and diversify supply. We're really uh, involved, and obviously a huge chunk of our uh, project uh, is, is working with policymakers um, on the role and relative significance and interactions of technology, market socioeconomics, gender, and behavioural factors that are conducive to or uh, inhibited of such uh, practices and approaches. We're identifying and demonstrating um, individual and collective, collective approaches that reduce dependency on high-carbon energy resources. I think I've just run out of time, but if I could just conclude that obviously this, this is just a small sample of the, the range of impacts that uh, our project is and will continue to have over the next year. If we just think about socioeconomic impacts, obviously the project has already delivered improved understandings of the range of factors which impact household energy practices. It, we've you know, enhanced our understanding of reduc reductions in energy use and uh, we've contributed to knowledge of the kind of initiatives that work, where they work, the degrees of success, etc. But uh, there are a range of, of other impacts and outputs, so I'd just like to encourage you to um, visit our website and to thank again the organisers and the Shape Energy Project. We've worked and collaborated with them, and it's been a really fruitful collaboration. So thank you all very much. Very fast. Thank you very much. Again, these are, all, these are all priceless little presentations. I think one of the things that I found interesting about that is adopting the principle of ethnography, uh, if I would call it that anyway, in terms of your, your learning and analysis, by actually sitting in homes and looking at what's happening, which I would have been quite interesting to see how you dealt with the ethics of that also, but I'm sure we'll, we have questions around that. Now, finally, last but not least, InnoPaths, we're going to listen to Andrew Hook from the University of Sussex um, in terms of finding innovation pathways to a low-carbon transition in Europe. Thank you very much. Is it, is it this one here? And you just press the green one to go forward? Okay, yeah. Um, afternoon, everyone, and thank you particularly to Chris and Ro Rosie for remembering us and inviting us and involving us in this. So having, I mean, having... Um, been introduced as a, a sort of being involved in inner paths, um, which uh, these other academics who maybe some of you are aware of. Um, I mean, it has to be it has to be said. Uh, speaking frankly, I mean, our our particular role in Sprue at Sussex is maybe not that representative of kind of the, the what what appears here as a sort of overarching. Uh, you know, aim of the the project. So I mean, it, it's also Horizon 2020 funded, and it's it's kind of right. It's still ongoing. So we're actually still doing field work on on uh, the project, and it's it's a huge project with 15 partners, um, 80 plus researchers working. And I mean, you can see here the overall sort of objective of Inner Paths is to work with key economic and societal actors to generate new, enhanced, low carbon pathways. And you can see these five kind of overarching aims here. 
Um, and the one I've highlighted at the bottom is actually the one that we're kind of contributing to at Sussex. So, I mean, if you look at the, the other four, I mean, in terms of understanding challenges to decarbonization, presenting detailed assessments of low-carbon technologies, proposing policy and innovation system reforms, and then four, um, this kind of generation of an interactive decarbonization simulator. So, I mean, they're, they're all quite high-level kind of, you might say, techno-economic objectives. And actually what we're doing... Um, Someone made the comment about being the kind of to token social scientist at the end. So I mean, we work, we're working kind of in science and technology studies and human geography and political ecology. But we're really, um, we're really working, taking forward some of the work we've been working on in the energy justice field. So um, really trying to understand in perhaps a, a contrarian way, you know, we have these, these low-carbon innovations, but, I mean, just because they let's say, improve the, the carbon, they have a lower carbon footprint than the old system, the fossil fuel-based system. I mean, are they necessarily always better in every way? Um, who wins and loses from these innovations? And so we've, um, in order to uh, sort of study some of these questions, we've uh, done four case studies on four different innovations in four different European countries that we, we kind of chose because they seemed like they were the, the sort of EU leaders in those particular innovations. So we have an £11 billion um, smart meter program in the UK currently. Um, electric vehicles are quite on the way to being almost, um, I think someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of new, newly bought cars, they are 40%. Um, okay. Um, solar PV has obviously in the last 10 or 15 years been a, been a huge, uh, had a huge kind of, um, you know, publicly funded feed-in tariff uh, system over there. Nuclear in France is perhaps a bit of an odd one. Some people will say it shouldn't be considered a, a low-carbon technology, but, I mean, for a lot of people, the nuclear dream is still alive. And so we thought it was interesting to actually look at the experience of France and to actually look at, take an energy justice lens on the experience of France with their nuclear transition. So, I mean, our, our methods were qualitative. We did um, 64 interviews, we did focus groups, and we did online forum analysis by kind of posting questions, uh, open-ended questions about kind of winners and losers from these transitions, and just waiting to see what people um, responded. So, I mean, broadly out of, out of this research, we kind of, we've got four themes at the moment. So, uh, the first one relates to co-benefits, so trying to understand low-carbon innovation beyond just reducing carbon, but actually having broader kind of social and political uh, objectives, particularly as a lot of the, the innovations themselves seem to be more decentralized. So I mean, what's the, what, what's the um, opportunities for participation and greater kind of decentralization and uh, distributed energy systems that those innovations bring? Um, we also took a critical justice lens that looked at some of the, the distributive aspects in society. And we also looked at some of the whole system's implications. So through the production cycle of extraction, production, consumption, and then waste as well, because a lot of the, the kind of low-carbon economy seems to be kind of underwritten by uh, extraction of you know, rare earth, uh, minerals, and other metals. Uh, we also looked at some of the user-based um, kind of injustices. So, so turning the idea of a user as purely a kind of innovator on its head, 
and looking at some of the ways that users maybe are not necessarily always a positive force in innovation. Um, and then we're, just very finally, we're following up with some, uh, some more site-based uh, case studies on particular sites of, I mean, it might, it might seem a bit counterintuitive to be looking at wine growers in France, but, I mean, they are a community that, that quite a few people uh, drew attention to as actually being affected by the, the nuclear transition. Also looking at um, extraction and waste as well in Ghana and Zambia. So, I mean, I guess the open-ended question here would be, I mean, what's the, how, how, does, how do these questions feed into the overarching aim of the Inner Paths project? And that would be interesting to hear some, some views on what you think, what's the value of energy justice or the identification of injustices within uh, these debates. Uh, so thank you. Can I ask all of you to take a seat so we can get into a debate and discussion? So we don't have a lot of time, unfortunately. Um, but rather than, I'm kind of, I've got lots of questions in my head, uh, which I can speak to you about later. But um, I'm sure you have. Gentlemen there. There is a microphone coming your way. I am Zen-like in my patience. This one is for Inopaths. A great, we're a sister project. I'm here, over here, look. We're, <laughs> I saw you looking in, out into the you dark. You may need to introduce yourself again, I'm very yeah, sorry. sorry. Garrett from Sea Change Net, based in Sarajevo. We're in a sister project of yours, EU Calc. And we, uh, yeah, we have some um, soft science in our hard science project as well. I wanted to know, uh, you say, what do we think about what you're doing? What does Professor Eakins, who's leading the project, think about the importance of what you're doing compared to all those other engineers and scientists? I presume 90% uh, of them are scientists who are, yeah, engineers. Hello? Yeah. No, you're right. Um, I... I I only joined Sprue last year, but I mean, I did, a, I did attend one kind of all partner meeting, and you're exactly right. I mean, it was, um, I think there was somebody looking at kind of, um, some of the, some of the social implications of the coal phase out, and some of the kind of, you know, the, you could say the justice dimensions of, of, uh, phasing out of, of, um, carbon intensive industries. And then there was us, who at that stage, we hadn't actually, we hadn't started the field work, but, um, you know, looking at justice issues. And yeah, most other people there were looking at how do we mobilize finance to kind of meet this, this, uh, this technological requirement to satisfy the same, you know, level of energy demand that we have now, and then kind of modeling different pathways. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just a question I, I wonder a lot. I mean, I, I think you can justify a focus on justice from, from two perspectives. One, you can say, well, if there's inequality, uh, it could contribute to social unrest, or from a Keynesian perspective, you could say it would reduce aggregate demand if people are excluded from a particular, you know, enjoying the benefit of a, of a particular technology. And then I think you also have to forward the kind of normative perspective as well, that we should, we should care about, you know, it, sh it should be something we care about, that people are not, not involved in something or they're not participating. So I think you can... I feel like you, you need to, depending on maybe who the audience is, you need to promote both 
perspectives, but I mean, what's what's your own view on that? I mean, how how would you how would you promote my short my short answer to you is. It's very important because if you know what's ahead of you, you can do something to ameliorate it and tackle it. And that's very important. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Mike, just here, please. Thanks. Chris Folds from Anglo Ruskin University. Um, it was just a general comment to the whole panel, really, um, linking back to particularly the second session this morning about um, the opportunities created for these projects and the sorts of funding calls that they emerge from. Bear in mind, I suppose, that one's a little bit more of a technical project. One, um, well, there's a cost project. There's also a sort of a, a direct contract. Then there's two specific energy SSH explicit calls. Um, you've all obviously got different research questions and priorities that have emerged, but obviously in getting these, they have been responses to cool wordings that the Commission have put out in various ways. So I wondered if you had any reflections upon what you uh, saw as non-negotiable and pushed forward uh, versus things that you sort of maybe wanted to had to include to get the funding, because obviously... You know, there's certain things that you have to do versus that you want to do, um, and anything that you have. I mean, and I suppose one one final comment for the for the energy SSH specific projects, um, where where they are um, sort of quite all inclusive to involve the whole SSH family. Does that drive us towards a sort of a theory of everything, and and is that possible and achievable in in some of these projects? Okay, very good question. I have to ask you to be brief. So, where did you have to, if you can be um, bold and brave enough to say where you had to kind of compromise your ambition or your critical inquiry question. Do you want to start? Sure. Um, I might start just with that second one. I mean, obviously, we, if you think about practice theory and you think about what we've heard an awful lot about today, behavioural change, we tried to merge um, a group of people that had very differing positions on that, which led to really spirited intellectual debates. But it's, it's not without its challenges, and it is something that we had to encounter. But I'm not sure if, you know, it's just something SSH researchers encounter in the sense of um, the debates we had as a, as a team. We came from all different backgrounds and disciplines, psychology, geography, sociology, uh, political science. But one particular just conversation jumps out for me, and that was a discussion about hard-to-reach communities and what that meant to all of the different disciplines and even what it means, shall we say, in the case of energy studies. Um, we're looking at trying to, you know, reduce energy consumption and hard to reach sometimes has um, connotations with vulnerable, shall we say, lower income households, whereas actually some of the biggest savings could be made with high income earners who themselves are potentially hard to reach because they don't normally engage in projects like our own. So I could give you loads of examples, Chris, if that's what you're looking for, but definitely it's, it's challenging. But from that comes great, obviously, academic debate, and um, we, we've negotiated it and we've navigated it. But a phrase like hard to reach was in the call, so we have it in our text. And yet, the, the you know, and phrases like that that, that you find yourself putting in, um, and then they lead to, shall we say, bigger debates, which are, which are interesting, but definitely a challenge of, of trying to respond to a call that's perhaps already a bit prescriptive in the, in the sense of uh, knowing what you're, what you're looking for. But did it, did, it, um, did it hamper you or did it actually add value? Because what, from what you're describing is that having that in 
enabled you, you to actually really excavate a little bit deeper and, and actually, as a community, really think about what we mean by hard to reach. Yeah, no, and that's one of the reasons why uh, I think Stefan brought it up earlier on in his comments about the timescale. You know, we'd love to have had years, <laughs> months even, to debate these uh, kind of topics, and that, again, is a, is a challenge. I th I, you know, we turned it into an opportunity, and we'll probably have academic papers on exactly that challenge, but in the context of moving the project forward... You, you kind of have to earmark a certain period of time to say, okay, this is our accepted definition moving forward. And we have a glossary, which I think Shape Energy did as well, which we found really useful to try and um, bring together. Again, SSH researchers from all different backgrounds still use different language. So uh, we came up with our own accepted glossary of terms that we agree on. And I think that's an excellent um, tool for any uh, project moving forward. Stephen? Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief. Uh, just um, one thing that I have found, not necessarily with these two projects, where I have to say there were various procedural expectations, but not necessarily quantitative uh, expectations and such. But I want, one thing I do find in a lot of the energy calls, which I think is an issue, is the very narrow framing of success and its uh, framing around energy efficiency, which is the only quantifiable thing, because that is quantifiable, going back to the savings thing. So you can quantify, the, let's say, a reduction in energy use or the, production or the expansion of a certain technology. But there are other, many other measures that are not entering the debate, and they are SSH-derived. For example, health improvements or quality of life improvements, improvements in good governance. Those kinds of things need to go into calls as measurable outcomes of a project, as opposed to the very narrow quantitative framing, kilowatts, kilowatt hours saved, or, I don't know, number of smart meters diffused and so on. And this is, I think, where the, our community can make a real difference. Georgia? Maybe from my side, what I can say is that, um, well, first of all, we did also have kind of a challenge in terms of communicating within our, uh, within our consortium. We are actually a bit of a strange uh, animal to a certain extent because a good part of our consortium is actually not uh, dealing with research as often. Uh, we have uh, experts on law. We have some network of local governments, different kinds of different stakeholders, and all of us uh, had a, to spend quite a bit of time in actually uh, trying to understand, first of all, the language that the others were using, and this remains still a little bit of a challenge, but also in trying to find a balance, and maybe that's where we, I can respond to the compromise in the ambition, finding a balance between uh, the research questions and what we want to get out, for example, from our living labs that we are implementing, but also the feeling that maybe uh, the partners that are not scientific researchers, let's say, were looking into the potential that we, what we can offer to them. So we had a long debate about how much are we asking to give us in terms of what we need for our research and how much can we offer them in terms of solution that they can actually apply. So that was definitely one of, one of the challenges that I think uh, we, we found as the most difficult. So at the moment, we have, I think, a fairly good balance in regards to this, where we have these, interact these interactions, these actions that we are implementing and co-developing directly with our living labs, and we try to understand really much what they need and try to support them in, uh, in really finding solutions that they can implement in the future. And we hope, of course, that all of these recommendations can then be also uh, fed back into our general research and could also be probably a good input for future topics that need to be um, brought forward in terms of research more in depth, for example. Just to name one, the old difficulty that these communities are finding in terms of small-scale 
investments and business plans that actually work for such kind of smaller scale uh, plans and in action. So I think that's just one among many others. Thank you. Andrew? Yeah, very short answer. Ask um, Benjamin Sovacool. Okay, what does that mean? Well, he's, he's the lead um, on this and I wasn't involved in the writing. Oh, okay. All right. Great. Um, thank you. Um, any other questions at all from anyone? Ah. Ah, sorry. I didn't see you there. Gentleman there and then I'll move over to you. Thanks. Um, it's really great today being here. Um, however, I don't really have a question. Actually, I actually have one comment. And um, today you, in the morning... Would you, le, uh, would you introduce yourself, please? I'm Julius. I work at Fraunhofer ISI in Germany. And I'm a PhD student at Utrecht University. So... We talked about disempowering social science, um, and Dirk made us aware, aware, really aware of it. And then um, Garrett said again, uh, soft science. And I was like, um, that's not the right thing to do. That's, that, if we say this word, then we disempower what we do here. And I think it's really important what we do here. So soft science imagines that everything that's not tangible is soft, and you can't really touch it. But if you, you, but soft science or social science, what we do, humanities very much looks at uh, institutions. Institutions can be around there for 30 years, for decades. So I just wanted to make you aware of it again, and I know I'm not the one to tell you, but I think I would really appreciate it if we just tell them what they do. Uh, so when people think about hard science, you can say engineers or natural scientists, and if we talk about our, our people, then we talk about SSR or we talk about social science. Um, and not about soft science and hard science. That's it. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that contribution. Well, well made, well, well thought through. Over here. Thank you. Uh, Ruth Maurik from DuneWorks. I have a question for the whole panel. Um, we have been talking about the gap between policy, practice, and research, and how to actually get SSH being taken up into policy. What have you had to do different uh, to be heard and used by policy in your projects? Great question. I was going to ask that. Good for you. Saves me doing it. Who'd like to have a crack at that? Obviously, it's an important one because that's why you're doing what you're doing, isn't it? <laughs> the microphone seems yeah, to be... <laughs> I can start. I mean, our projects are very much policy-orientated, so... There is not that challenge, but elsewhere we have had that issue. One thing the observatory will do uh, this coming year, I think that, that will hopefully have an impact, I'm hoping it will happen, is we'll actually produce a fairly clear guideline about how to move forward with defining, measuring, and quantifying, but also acting upon energy poverty. One of the issues I've had constantly is in my work all these years is, is to try and uh, simplify this, this fairly... I would say fuzzy issue of energy poverty into clear policy prescriptions because it very often just gets reduced to, oh, well, you know, improve social policy or improve energy efficiency policy or come up with some definition. Um, and it's not easy. I think one, one key thing for, for, um, for all of us to think about is really um, where, do our, um, where does our thinking not just confirm what a policymaker wants to hear, but where do we challenge them on the approaches they've already taken? So this is, you know, it's very easy for a policymaker to hear, oh, well, you, you're doing everything good, just continue. But really, I think 
uh, what, what the big challenge is you actually do need to understand your research very well to be able to distill f f four or five key messages that challenge where consistent things that have been consistently there actually are going to be changing. And that requires uh, a lot of re introspecting, introspective thinking about what you do, but also it requires being able to come up with five messages, really, or four or five messages that are then transferable. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Um, at a really practical level, um, obviously within the Energize project, we have an entire work package dedicated to policy integration. So within that, we have a policy decision-making forum. And given that the majority of the researchers on the team were academics, we really drew on um, experts from around Europe who were practitioners in the field primarily. Um, and again, we meet with those or we're in contact with them on a regular basis throughout the project. But I guess that's, that might be fairly typical for a lot of EU projects, as well as obviously going to European sustainable energy week and these kind of activities I take every opportunity I get to come to Brussels given the, the amount of people here. Uh, perhaps what we're doing um, slightly and I guess a more innovative, uh, well obviously we, we take a scalar approach to policy implementation we um, you know, we, we meet and we talk with our regional, local policymakers as well as our national ones. And then, shall we say, that the, the EU, um, we, we've developed a whole range of different policy briefs. What we have learned, and I think this, you know, when we think about dissemination and maybe policy impact, is it's grouping up with other projects in the area. I know uh, we worked with Natalie in the Shape Energy Project and Niall Dunphy in the Entrust Project, and together we ran a workshop and developed exactly what you were saying there, Stefan, just four or five key points and deliverables from it because we do know you know limited time and and the idea of making an impact short policy briefs but they're just things we're doing in a very practical level Ruth um, obviously we're always open to to ideas because this is it's so important for all of our projects okay, thank you Georgia Thank you. So from, from our side, of course, we are also doing quite a few activities uh, um, that try to bridge this gap, let's say. Um, so from a very practical point of view, we have so far uh, spent quite a bit of our time in trying to assess how the new energy package is actually going to be received into the different uh, national legislation and particularly what, are the, what is the potential for the, uh, the national energy and climate plans that are being drafted. Specifically, we have organized quite a couple of webinars where we try to uh, engage different types of, of stakeholders, including, of course, other researchers, but also directly local, regional, and national policymakers to explain a little bit what is the potential there, what can be done in the future, and how, what, how we have assessed, what we have assessed until now, what are the results of our research. Uh, we have then these lo this local living labs that we have mentioned, and in most of them, we have local authorities as well as some regional authorities uh, engage directly into the process of co-creating the activities that are being implemented. So de facto that will change hopefully a little bit also the support that they are giving to these communities initiatives. And then of course we also have a few uh, different briefings, recommendations that we try to um, develop in a way that they could address the different kinds of target groups that we have, including specific messaging for, uh, policy, uh, for policy stakeholders, of course. And then finally, lately, we have been exchanging quite a bit with the European Economic and Social Committee, as well as with the Committee of the Regions, uh, so at the more, let's say, European level, to, to really look into how the results of the work that we have been doing, especially in terms at the moment of policy regulation can support any sort of a, uh, opinion that they are uh, developing for the future, or even if it's just you know solid numbers, we, we put it that way, solid numbers uh, and, and, and real life experiences that we can bring uh, to the table for them to also make better informed decisions at every level. Okay. 
Okay, thank you. Andrew, or yeah. ask Benjamin? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you what Benjamin would have said. Great. <laughs> no, um, yeah, broadly agreeing with everyone else. Um, I think trying to, I mean, I don't think that many policymakers read academic articles. So, I mean, the obvious things like um, write, writing shorter policy briefs and blog pieces. Um, I know that uh, Spruers, you know, had a lot of uh, engagement, some of it quite heated over the issue of smart meters in the UK. But, I mean, the attention has come from writing shorter pieces, blog posts, communicating with journalists, um, working, you know, forging alliances with different advocacy organizations and also just maintaining an, maintaining an ongoing dialogue and, and keeping kind of policymakers themselves on side so they, you know, they want to talk to you and they don't see you as a kind of uh, someone who's, you know, not constructive to talk to. So, yeah. Mm. Sure. It's a, it's a really good question because in there, there's such a lot of stuff there around attribution and what you can actually say that, you know, it's because of what our action has, you know, has, has led to this. Um, but, you know, we know, you know well enough that part of, this, part of the problem solution there is what are the proxies you use? What are the proxies you define to actually attribute that change? But also, I think the other issue that occurs to me is that... Um, what, when you think about the four of you, if you were to aggregate that you know, and make sense of that as a use you as a sandpit for understanding that whole cycle that all of you are doing, it would be quite interesting and quite fascinating to understand what the impact that could have on policy making and behaviour change. I want to just pass that over to you as a final comment, if I may, Xavier, in terms of the, the role that you guys will play in trying to aggregate some of this learning and... Um, all the projects you have, that somehow you're able to use that in a way that's meaningful for meaningful policy judgment, if I, if I, may, if I may say that. Okay. A tough one, I know. Yeah, t t a very tough question. Um, uh, I think what, what, what we may be trying to do, and which may require also a new positioning with respect to Horizon Europe or, or, or research, is, is both, and I think there were uh, strong elements in the presentation about uh, energy poverty that go in that direction, is that one, at one level we have to come up uh, with a space where stakeholders can uh, devise meaningful research agendas. And, uh, and, and I think uh, that, that's one place where GOC can play a role uh, in bringing together stakeholders from research, from policy, but also from society to look at what are, what are the uh, unknown unknown, what, the, what are the uh, known unknown, and, and, and create a kind of consensus of wh wh where research should go. Then there's the kind of meta-analysis of the research. It's clear that if we want to have an impact on policy, uh, we have to make it simple for policymakers to digest. So I'm not saying that we have to simplify mm. the reality, but just uh, and, and so there's a, a whole range of experiments that are ongoing with observatories uh, a, a bit also like what you do. That is, it starts with making sure that we can integrate um, the existing research and, and have access to it. And there's, uh, there's a learning process on how you can make sense of it. Uh, and I think here again, this is not a matter for the GSC to uh, do it alone. We have to devise ways of making sense of the existing research with a number of stakeholders. I agree also with what has been said, is that it's not only 
the relation, the bilateral relation between research and policy which is impactful. It's really managing the complex relationship between research, society, and policymakers. Yeah. In the hand, at the top of the policymaking, you have politicians, and politicians are driven by the opinions of uh, citizens rather than by science or their administration, in a way. So I think this is to get this, um, uh, this conversation right, that we are a bit struggling. Mm -hmm. And that's why also in, 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 in the GRC we, we spend um, the same kind of efforts in engaging with the uh, policy DGs, our, our colleagues across the Commission, but trying also to devise new ways of empowering actors outside so that they can forge their own opinion and communicate it to policymakers. Mm. It's a good point you make. I think you know, one of the things, the principles underpinning future funding ought to be, really, given what we've heard today, but also what we've been listening to in terms of projects, is that they ought to be a, almost a, a, um, a, a red line, that, that you should always have some form of community engagement, real-life engagement, a citizen focus to all that you do, to be able to think about that dynamic that you've described between the three kind of policy, uh, research, etc., that might be provocative, but actually, when we think about the interconnections that are required, it might be a useful thing to do. And the other point that, you know, I think funders don't do often enough is use some of their funding budget to enable projects they fund to come together in a collaborative practice over time, not at the end. Because as a funder in the UK, one of the things that we introduced when I was there was actually to actually bring the projects we funded together in the first six months of their, their, their inception, which, and then did that over the years. And that had such a huge Im impact on their capacity, but also we got such rich learning from that that informed our funding practice. So one thing to think about. Just briefly, before I ask you all to choose your tables, are you, each of you going to be seeking continu continuation funding? Are you going to be looking for more money for the same work? Okay, okay, that's an interesting point. I'll leave you on that note. Colleagues, I thank, you, thank you very much for co contributing to this discussion. Now, now you have the opportunity to learn from the Shape Energy Consortium partners, and there are going to be parallel learning points here. There are tables there, you, I, unless you've already chosen one, uh, but there's a, I, I believe there's a name on the table, is that right? Is that right? So please make yourself, uh, get, bring yourself to your table and there should be uh, a person that will be presenting their particular topic. Ah, it's there. Look, there you go. I should look down more. So you can read, hopefully, that you've got Duneworks, Energy Cities, Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, Politico di Torino and then Anglia Ruska University. Enjoy. So, colleagues, I'm really sorry. It's a really bad thing to do because you're really enjoying yourselves, I reckon. Or the fact that you just don't want to leave because it's snowing outside and you just want to go out into the cold. I'm sure it's not that. But um, I'm just going to, literally, I'm going to, if I could get your attention for a minute. Okay. So, what would you say was a good learning point, high point, or something that really struck out for you from today? I don't know, I have to think about it. Anybody else? Can I ask somebody else? Come on. From today, today's day. Ah, oh, great. I know. Um, we, sh we should uh, adopt a more holistic approach 
and uh, energy poverty is not only a social issue. And I have really uh, heard the call of social scientists that want to work hand in hand with all of their colleagues from all of the other fields. So you got a sense of commonality that came across. Anybody else on this table? Uh, right. Um, I would like to make a call uh, for action. I think we have partly been preaching for the converted in the sense that we know why uh, social science and humanities should be involved in policy making. To some extent also what, uh, but the how. How do we do it in practice? I think that's the next thing. Um, and I would like to hear more from you as to how you think you could do that starting tomorrow. Okay. And what did you think of today? Well, that's what I thought of today. I know this one, which is very provocative. Always. Always. Anybody else? Would you like to say something? Here, let me, I've caught, you've caught my eye, so... Me? Yeah. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, well, to be honest, what resonated a lot with me was this call in the morning that um, I think Stefan mentioned it as well, that social science research or assets, SSH research, as we call it, should not be the, the add-on to research projects in the end. And we need to move away from a mindset that is focused on we have technological in innovations that we need to implement and that society has to accept. But we need to start with the social processes and the social practices that underlie our society, and then we maybe get to better solutions. Okay. I think that resonated a lot with me. But my, may I add something? Yeah, I think in the same panel that where we had this main opinion that this mindset should be changed, our discussion was also a lot about electric cars and the diesel engine. So the discussions that we had were, again, about the technologies. So we criticized the mindset that at the same time was very strongly featured in our discussion as well, just an interesting observation for me. And was it worth attending? Yes. Good, it was worth attending. That's good to know. Who am I going to go to here? Gentleman here. <laughs> so, uh, what I appreciate a lot of today is the use of many terms that are not so uh, spread in this field of research. Uh, referral to values, to emotion, uh, to practices rather than behaviors. That is, all the um, symbolic dimension connected with energy, all the meanings and the uh, social dimension of construction of meanings that is behind energy transition. But since uh, I agree also <laughs> with you, what you were saying about diesel and, and, and giant, so uh, I would also like to add a, a criticism, in a certain sense, a provocative criticism. I'm a social psychologist. I've heard some referral to psychology and to behavioral approach, to nudge, etc. And w what I have to say is that we still don't know enough about each other. Huh? I heard about uh, biases uh, and... Uh, um, you know, other kind of cognitive approach that dates back to the 80s. Of course, they are very relevant approaches in environmental psychologies, but there is still many other approaches, at least for my field. So I think that we still don't know each other if we still think about sociology in one way, art in another way, psychology 
in another way, we still have to break some prejudice. Okay, excellent. Anybody else on this table? Do you want to say something? Um, I'm just a little bit... So thank you for... It was very interesting, but I'm thinking um, all the time about progress, how we ensure progress, and I see uh, some a lot of moralization, moral, um, like climate change is a, for sure a moral issue, but I'm concerned about the independence of scientific truth. For me, it's very important to work in the parliament. And here, everything is a moral matter, and for me, progress is itself fair, because progress itself ensures economic growth and social security. And so, Ivan, I'm from the conservative group. For me, uh, moral is not an aim. Moral is just a simple, simple rule. So I have another approach. So this is why what I'm thinking all the time a little bit. Yeah, thank Was you. It worth coming today for you? For sure. I... Good. Okay. Good. Good. D don't hesitate to say if you don't think it was a good thing, and come to you. What did you get out of? Do you enjoy today? Was it worth coming? What did you get out of it? Any of those questions? Well, thank you for the session. It has been great. Uh, I learn a lot about, um, I'm become from a regional government and it's interesting for uh, our perspective to see how uh, the global objectives are set up and then how you think about uh, implementing on the consumption. I think one, uh, an important thing I, uh, also is uh, it's great to have the science, uh, the social science uh, involved, but uh, at the same time the politics should have the compromise of... Uh, um, wanted to listen to that and, and integrate uh, the message in their uh, making policy. Okay. Great. Can I come to you? Of course. You. May I ask you what your name again? Darmendra. Darmendra. A big clap to Darmendra because it's been a fantastic <laughs> facilitator. Oh, really. I observed the way you facilitate this process. It's a meta-observation of uh, dialogue among disciplines and uh, stakeholders, so very grateful for your wonderful facilitation process. And yes, I, I catch uh, the call uh, by Ruth at the table there to take action, and maybe we as an academic institution, we, we need to change our way we educate students no, toward complexity, uncertainties, and so mix more humanities into engineers and STEM courses. We can be an uptake from today. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much for being so kind. Um, <clears throat> gentleman here, unsuspecting. <laughs> what did you make of today? Was it, worth, was it worth coming? What did you get out of it? I mean, as a member of the Shape Energy Consortium, I think you I... You can't say anything else, can you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it was... Um, uh, like uh, brought many things also back back to memory and seeing the complexity basically unfold of what we heard uh, in the panels especially. And um, I was reminded by this latter comment uh, about knowledge and knowledge management and um, how things are coming together. I think there's still um, a lot in the open and especially for unfolding um, the future grid, right, which many people call the smart grid. Uh, and there's many different kinds of knowledge we sometimes even still don't know about that need to come together and that also we as social scientists need to unravel uh, that might be available to some specialists or experts in the field actually here and there 
on how they found solutions to certain uh, developments that are still in the open, but we, we don't know about them because there's lots of experiments going on, lots of things on the ground, but I think academia also needs new methods and new formats in particular uh, of how to go about and how to gain knowledge and um, how to make especially social science research valuable. Um, and I think um, in that regard, um, this was very inspirational today uh, in, in learning how this could be done because I think a lot of the discussion was about format and processes. I think that's um, a direction that we should, should look at stronger. And also at this table, we, ha we, we had a discussion about interdisciplinarity, and um, that reminded me of this because, again, it was a lot about processes and how communication should be framed and, and taken forward. So I had lots of um, uh, learning uh, curves today. Excellent. Thank you very much. Finally, can I come to you? How did you find today? Was it worth coming, and what's your main takeaway? Um, well... For me, it has been um, a very enlightening experience um, in the sense like um, it's very comforting to see so many social scientists together discussing one topic that seems um, not on the spotlight usually. And um, a lot of uh, interesting questions has popped up after all this morning and afternoon and in the sense like, is energy appealing for social science? And if not, what is our role? here in any profession or, uh, or career that we're trying to do, how is actually, we are actually embedded uh, in that process. And that's also something to take action. And that's, I think, the reflective, the reflection I got from, from the event. Thank, thank you very much. Okay, thank you all colleagues. Um, that's it from us. I hope that we've enabled you to debate the right issues connect with each other but connect the dots in policy, the intersectionality issue, and think deeply about the change that's required. One thing we know about climate change is that the reality of it is, um, you know, it's something that we cannot argue with, but actually, it's what I said earlier, and it's my final point, it's one of those issues, it's a societal issue, a planet, planet, planet issue, that somehow on this occasion with that issue, the past most definitely can't be a blueprint for the future, and we know that we need pace and urgency. And actually, what social science can do is actually ratchet up the argument and making sure it connects back into citizens so that we actually get a different policy and a different dialogue about the need for pace and urgency. Thank you all very much for your time, and um, that's it. Safe journeys back home and enjoy your time. And I hope you do maintain contact with each other because that's the beauty of something like this. Because actually if you do, you'll find some magic will happen, especially when you've not met each other before. So enjoy, thank you very much, and thank you for being here. Can I just ask the, um, the consortium partners to come to the stage for a little photograph with each other? So those of you on the consortium, Partners, partners list, please do come up to the platform for a picture. Safe home, everybody.